Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. On this program, we read books written by local writers, and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is, Listen Local, Think Global. This is Season 3 of Watershed Writers. I am your host, Tannis MacDonald. Francis Roberts Riley steers the ship as the show's producer, and John Roscoe is our technical director and promotion specialist. We are very happily partnered with the wonderful folks at Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo for our broadcast, and you can also catch past episodes, including all of Seasons 1 and 2, on SoundCloud. Our first guest for Season 3 is going to be the Waterloo novelist Pamela Malloy, who just has a new book out. But first, we're going to open with a little review of what we did last summer. And what we did was promote our books. I guess it comes as no surprise to anyone that the people behind Watershed Writers are actually writers. But this summer, the literary harmonic convergence happened, and that saw Frances Roberts Riley on the tour of her life, uh, going on the road with her book to Wales, while I stuck slightly closer to home and promoted my book at various points west, in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, plus a few places in Ontario. Here are Francis and I comparing notes on life on the literary road and how it all went. Hi, and welcome to Watershed Writers. I'm Tannis McDonald, and I have with me Francis Roberts Riley, and we thought we would start season three with a little bit of talk about what we've been doing over the summer, because the planets aligned, the literary planets aligned, and we both had books that we were promoting this summer, and we thought we'd talk a little bit about what it was like to tour with a book and to be back in touch with in-person audiences. Now, I stayed in Canada, but Francis went to the UK. <laughs> Francis, tell me about about that. Yes, I went to uh, Wales. Um, my book, Paramecia, a, a Robert E. Poetry Collection, was actually published in Wales by Cinnamon Press. So, And I have all my roots um, from my Welsh Gypsy heritage in Wales. It just made sense to go and uh, tell our story back to them. What was wonderfully surprising was the reception it got that many of them in the audience came up and told me, well, I'm a Welsh Gypsy. And so I met like distant cousins. I had. These were all family branches that you knew of, but yeah. didn't know personally. And apparently they heard about book launch and they came to hear it. We, I, and it was just amazing. It was exhausting. <laughs> There's a there's a whole side to publication about launching books and about uh, about events because writers are very private when they're writing their books. We're mostly stuck in a room writing and mm -hmm. right, and then all of a sudden it's just you telling your story, sometimes <laughs> in front of a room of strangers. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and the thing that you have to go with is expect the unexpected and the real doubts come in when you start thinking, oh, will they come? <laughs> will there, will yeah. there be an audience? You know, both you and I are published by small independent presses. Yours is in Wales, mine is, is here. I'm Straggle. Adventures on Walking While Female is my new book and is published by Woolsack and Wynn in Hamilton. And it's a great publisher, but it's also not a huge publisher, right? And I'm well aware of the effort that goes into promoting all of that season's books from that publisher. And I can't hog all of their attention. So I have to do some of it on my own. Yes, that's um, true. I had two as well. And it really helped to have boots on the ground there. I had a colleague who um, as a, a Welsh speaker. So that helped because we live in a pretty fast, swift culture here. And we can expect an answer to an email, well, 48 hours at the most. N not, not over there. No. Oh, no? Yes. Yeah, so there was a lot of, is this going to happen? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you say there's like a cultural difference in terms of setting up events. Setting up events, exactly. And in one of the uh, venues, it was an art gallery. I kept getting, I'm out of the office. And <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so my, my contact in Wales made the phone call and spoke in Welsh to them. So uh, for, I, I think we were a week out before I actually knew it was going to happen. <laughs> but, and, but there was a huge thing this summer, too, about people didn't know whether any in-person events would happen. Mm -hmm. And I know the person uh, who was running uh, publicity for me would say, I'm trying to book this mm -hmm. and no one can give me a, an answer. So she was yeah. getting answers, but the answers were all, we don't know whether we can go with an in-person event yet. Yeah, I had right. exactly the same, especially where typically my publisher would put uh, readers in cafes. They didn't mm. have staff. They, they just yeah. couldn't hold a venue there because they didn't have the staff to pull it off. So yeah. then there was a plan B, you know. Well, I've never done as many outside events as I did this year because that was the safe option. So I led Poetry Walk and I read from Straggle in all sorts of outdoor spaces. Yes. So uh, yes. that was one way to get by it. And then, of course, I read Masked and I read, you know, in all kinds kinds of uh, situations. So it really was expect the unexpected. And you went home too, didn't you, Dennis? I did. I, I went to uh, I went to the prairies and it's lovely to I, I taught on the prairies for a number of years. So it was lovely to see former uh, former students, all of whom are doing really well and writing their own books. And um, it's always great to go home and go to uh, McNally Robinson in Winnipeg. Yeah, well, I, but I, I was found I was super jealous of your um, of all the pictures I saw of uh, like of these great harpists mm -hmm. and musicians that you were reading with. Well, I, I wanted to keep within the Roman Gypsy tradition, which is uh, spoken word and music. And so I was working with a 16 year old brilliant harpist who we just flowed. I mean, it was just incredible. I'd read a poem, I'd tell a story, she would um, play a jig or a hornpipe from our repertoire. Um, and then at the end, she came on with her dad and did clock dancing. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, the audience were almost on their feet, you know, it was, um, we had a packed house every time. Oh, that sounds so that, great. That was great. Um, I just wanted to keep within the tradition of storytelling and spoken word, you know, of my of my heritage. And for me, it was um, it was an interesting kind of mix because uh, Straggle is a 
what we're calling a hybrid book in that it's it's sort of uh, meets at the corner of nonfiction and poetry. It's more nonfiction than poetry. A lot of uh, people who knew my work would show up to listen to me read poetry and, and then say, oh, no, wait a minute, this is prose. Well, I was a mixture of storytelling and, and poetry, which is, in my tradition, the way you do it. don't know if you call that a hybrid, but... This is not a, a new thing. In fact, it's a very old thing that is being reclaimed, I would uh, say. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad you had a wonderful time. I was catch, keep, I was keeping up. I was on the road, but I was keeping up with you. Yeah, I think you had a brilliant time. I think it's still going on, isn't it? Uh, a little bit. I'm yeah. I'm at the Wild Riders Festival coming up. Yeah. I'm also at Sudbury Wordstock beginning of November, and still have a few events out there. It's one thing about a book; it doesn't actually, you know, get old. You True, know, I, but, I published mine in 2020, and this was the first chance I had to go out, and when yeah. it was just as fresh as it was in. Two years ago. Yeah. See, it's it's the technology of the book. You know, yeah. ink on paper. It's vulnerable in some ways. It can get wet, um, but uh, in other ways, it uh, it survives. So yeah, I think I think the biggest and um, sort of processing it three weeks later, I'm realizing that what I gave them was something that I was proud of and and loved and imbued with love, and it was a gift to them that they could be proud of in Wales. Yeah, um, no, that was great. That was huge. It was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are ready for a third season of Watershed Writers, and that is coming up. Thanks, Francis, for talking to me about your uh, your tour experience. Well, thank you, Tennis. And now to our guest for this episode of Watershed Writers. Allow me to introduce to you the Waterloo writer, Pamela Malloy, who is fresh from the launch of her second novel about four people anticipating the outbreak of hostilities in the late 1930s England. Her first book was called The Deserters, which was published in 2019. And both her books explore the dynamics of love, betrayal, and sacrifice in eras of uneasy peace. The Deserters takes place on Canada's East Coast, exploring the relationship between a lonely woman who is trying to restore a farm to working order and a veteran of the Iraq War who is newly on the run after being resisted to being recalled to service. And the book is called The Deserters, plural, because each character is negotiating what it might mean to be loyal or to declare themselves absent without leave from a duty they no longer feel. For her second novel, Pamela takes her title from a poem by the Nobel Prize-winning Polish writer Wisława Szymborska. It's titled, As Little As Nothing. That title fits into the novel's inquiry into the ways people prepare themselves for conflict. The novel begins a year before Britain embarks on war with Germany, and it takes readers through the doubt, the fear, and the determination of people who know they are living through as the saying goes, interesting times. More about that in a minute. Pamela Malloy has lived all over the world, in Poland, England, and the United States, but currently makes her home in the Grand River region where she works as the editor of the New Quarterly and as the creative director for the Wild Writers Literary Festival. She is currently at work on her third book, A Work of Nonfiction. 
Welcome to Watershed Riders, Pamela Malloy. Thank you so much, Tanis. It's a pleasure to be here. I really want to congratulate you on your new book, your new novel, As Little As Nothing, newly out from ECW Press. And we're going to talk about that book extensively in a few minutes. But uh, on Watershed Writers, I'm always interested in finding out a little bit about how our authors came to the Grand River region. I know you're someone who's lived all over the world, and I'm interested in how that kind of peripatetic lifestyle has influenced you as a, as a writer and a thinker. You know, in this age of global migration and, and even moving all over Canada, which is a very large landmass, I'm always interested in how people come here, which is not a big city, which is a, you know, a kind of smaller center, particularly someone who's lived everywhere the way you have, uh, what your reaction is to being in this smaller kind of perhaps more humble or more modest place. Yeah, it's been a journey, I think, that's been going on for a while. I mean, I'm from New Brunswick. I'm from, I come from a sort of small city, Moncton, originally. And I lived in Ontario for a while. And then I moved to Poland in the early 90s. I lived there for a year in Sopot, which is near Gdansk, which is the sort of the, the seat of Solidarność. And I taught English for a year. This is just after communism had, had uh, fallen down. So there were people really eager to learn English. I taught English for a year. Then I moved to Warsaw, worked for the public relations firm of the Foreign Investment Agency. And after three years of living in Poland, I decided to take a personal sabbatical and I treated myself to a master's degree in uh, Norwich, England, studies and fictions master's. So I lived there for eight years. I did my degree and met my husband, and he went on to do his degree, his PhD. And from there, we moved to Illinois, where he did a postdoc for a year. And then we rented a U-Haul and with our nine-month-old baby, drove up from Illinois, towing our car, and landed in Kitchener-Waterloo. So he got a job here at Wilfrid-Laurier University. So that's the reason we came here. Great. That's a journey, a journey and a half. And I, I think I want to hear more about uh, about living in Poland at, at that particular time. Um, and, you know, that makes me, me wonder about the influence of being there in that time in history had any influence on some of your subject matter about uh, people living through and just before catastrophic events. Oh, that's a really interesting question because I hadn't thought of it like that. But I mean, it, the reality was it was a very tumultuous time. It was evident living there that it had been a difficult time prior to being me living there. And it was still tumultuous when I was living there. So I guess it is, you know, sort of coming out to the other side of a catastrophic event was, was something that I experienced firsthand. So yeah, I guess it did probably did have some influence on the way I think about being on on either side of some sort of major catastrophic event. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm going to ask you about uh, favorite writers here uh, from the Grand River region. Uh, you know, this is all about like reading local, like we say, read local, think global. And um, and I know you're in a position to have read uh, lots of people who uh, who live in the region, lots of writers. And uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot and say, do you have favorite writers uh, from the region? I do. Yeah, I work with a lot of writers in the region, and I'm excited that there are so many writers here. Our day, my day job as editor, I you know like to kind of promote this area as a literary destination for people because it is so rich with uh, you know writers here. 
when I moved here, one of the first things I really had to do to kind of find my roots was to find a literary community. That was really, really important for me. I lived in Norwich for eight years and it was a really rich literary community. And it, it really kind of grounded me in that space. So moving here, I was kind of, you know, I had a small baby. I was a little bit at sea. I was, you know, what, what do I do here? And so finding that community was really important. And Aaron Bow was a writer in residence at the Waterloo Library. So, you know, I stumbled over and said, you know, <laughs> hello, I'm where I'm here, take me in. And as it turned out, she start, was starting a writing group as part of her residency. And I joined her writing group. And, you know, it was a very, it became a very small group. And I've been in her writing group since then. And the book that I'll choose is Plain Kate, because she was working on it at the time. And I was able to see firsthand it become this thing that was a manuscript that was suddenly a book with a publisher and, you know, a it went out into the big wide world. So it was really exciting to see that. And it's also as somebody who I don't read a lot of, of um, fantasy or young adult books, just because I've got so much other reading that I'm doing with work. So but I I mean, she's such a beautiful writer. And and to be taken into that world, I just thought, yeah, I can she's she does both so well writing for young writers or uh, and fantasy. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Erin Bow was our very first guest on our very first uh, season of Watershed Writers. And uh, we talked about Plain Kate. We talked about Plain Kate and blood magic and balancing all those Eastern European fairy tales. And uh, Erin's uh, a great friend uh, of the podcast. And also, uh, I want to uh, mention that she publishes fantastic poetry under her maiden name of Erin Noteboom. And I know she has a new book coming out with Brickbook sometime in the next year. Yeah, she's just a beautiful writer all around. Indeed. Okay, so let's turn to talking about As Little As Nothing. And this is a book that takes place the year before Britain enters what the conflict that becomes World War II. That, that timing, right? For me, reading about that year just prior to a nation entering a, a state of war, um, became such an exercise in historical tension throughout the book. So there's that use of dramatic irony in that every time I would see the date, you know, that it was, um, you know, October 4th, 1938. And I'm just like, ah, it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to, you know. So the dramatic irony where the reader, i.e. me, knew some of what was waiting for the novel's protagonist, but certainly not all. I, I thought it was a, a major appeal here. It kept me reading because I think, when are they going to find out about this? When are they going to, you know, when is it going to um, dawn on them that this is indeed uh, a war? Especially since Neville Chamberlain uh, continues to, uh, to speak with Adolf Hitler, apparently staving off war. And of course, we know that, that that didn't happen, but it was a conversation that the governments were having. Okay, so you said that you wanted to write about living in anticipation of a catastrophic event. And, and can you say a little bit more about why that was important to you and how the anticipation of that guided you in writing this novel? You know, I knew that I wanted to write about the women flying with the air transport auxiliary for a number of years. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with the, narr the narrative. So I was sort of had that in the back of my mind. And, and I started thinking about this book around 2016. And it felt as though that time in 
our lives was a was a kind of pivotal moment. It felt like there was a lot going on at that moment. You know, right wing governments were getting in power. You know, England was leaving the European Union. It just it just sort of felt like there was it was a moment, and I, I started thinking about what what it would be like to be living in a catastrophic time. Partly because I was also thinking about these women flyers and thinking about what it would be like to be kind of thinking about war. What would what does war look like? And I started to think about, in fact, often it's the anticipation of something that can have as much dramatic tension as the actual event. Um, and I think the unknown of what is to come is something that lives in our imagination and we don't know what it is. You know, once something happens, we can go into survival mode. We can look for help. We can look for concrete help. But that moment of anticipation was really something that I think I felt at the moment of, of writing it and, and, and not knowing what was coming. I mean, I didn't know that catastrophic event would be a pandemic, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it turned out there was something there. Yeah, I think it was the, the the kind of tension of waiting became something that I really wanted to explore and to stay with. And and also just thinking about what does that look like? You know, are we in a constant state of fear? Of course not, you know, because we can't be in a constant state of fear because, as you say, you know, Chamberlain is going to see Hitler and, and maybe it'll be fine. You know, they'll 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 work it out. They'll have a good chat and 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 get to, to terms with things. But the not knowing can be terrifying. You know, we know what the war looked like. When I, every day I was writing, I had to kind of erase that moment of history. <laughs> yeah, that's a challenge. Put yourself in that moment and not know, or at least suspend that knowing for a little while. The thing that helped me do that was I subscribed to the Guardian Archive. So I was reading the the newspaper on the dates that I I you know went across the year and was looking at those dates, and of course you know in today where we are in the era of breaking news, it was kind of interesting for me to see that first of all the Guardian did not have big old headlines announcing these major events because the broadsheets had classified on their front page, they felt that it was too sensational. They didn't want to be seen like a tabloid if they put sensational headlines. Well, I was actually looking through, like it was, I think I think it was like second page two or three that you'd find the actual news. And, you know, there were big-ish headlines, but they weren't sort of, you know, what we would see today. So it helped me to really get a sense of what it looked like from day to day. Yes, this these negotiations are happening, but at the same time, there's a an opening at the theater, or there's a new there's a new film at the cinema, there's a new book out, a sale on settees, you know, these things, these everyday things that were going on. So using the Guardian archive really helped to kind of ground me in the day to day. That's great. I love that. I, I, and I remember reading things like, I think there's a pig that run, runs amok at one point. So there's also silly news as well as, as sail on settees. I thought that, that that was great. And so there we have everyone living in anticipation of a catastrophic event in their own personal lives as well. So that catastrophic mm -hmm. event is definitely the conflict between nations, but it's also everyone str struggling with a catastrophic, a potential catastrophe in their own life as well, which I, uh, which I really loved as a kind of parallel. I'm interested too, in addition to being pitched as a kind of historical novel, that it's also a novel of reinvention of the ways that we reinvent ourselves, which is one of the phrases that's on the back cover of the book. And one character points out that living through a tumultuous time, and she is referring to the First World War when she says this, 
She says that it erodes something in people. And she notes that before World War I, and this is quoting her speech that you've written, yearning was everything, right? So, and that of course, that changed. And I, I'm really interested in hearing you parse that idea. Uh, what, what's the difference between growing up yearning and growing up not yearning? Yeah, I think that the idea of that came from, you know, I watched a video, my daughter was in high school at the time I started writing it. And she was watched, she had a school video that she had to watch about about the year 1900. And it was a historical film. And it really kind of showed that era as a time of great invention. And it was it was a time of, you know, wealth and, you know, happiness and innovation. And, you know, it was it was almost like people couldn't imagine anything like First World War, and that you could just want something and it would it would come. And so I was really struck by the fact that you could live in an era where you would feel that kind of palpably, you know, sort of feel like, okay, this is this bubble period. And then again, not, not knowing what was down the road, but actually just having that as a kind of period that was marked off. So I started thinking about what does it feel like to live in that in a period of like that where you you yearn for something and it, it is evident around you that things are in a different place than if you were living in a time when there's great war, when it's a struggle, it's very difficult to kind of even imagine any kind of future. So it was just those two periods and, not, and looking at them side by side to see what the impact on on individual would be. I know that in uh, his book, uh, The Great War and Modern Memory, Paul Fusel talks about the idea that for a certain class of person, the war never ends. Like there's a constant war between World War One and, and World War Two, particularly for working class men, mm -hmm. working class women as well, right? That the years between the wars were considered a mere blip of peace in what is a what is constant war. And so I, I liked that you were thinking about this as a, a kind of bubble that people are in, but they've already been so changed by the changes that have been wrought through World War One that by the time they get to World War Two, people are different. People think differently. Right. And yearning was everything. And the woman who says that just da barely dares to yearn. So, mm -hmm. OK, I think that is enough talk about it. Let's let's hear something from it. Can you read for us? I certainly can. I thought I'd read from the opening just to give us some sense of, of Miriam. This so it opens with Miriam. So excellent. Miriam knew she needed to fly when she lost her fifth baby. Those luminous nights, the pearl moon casting shadows across the village as she took flight, her arms spread, her body soaring, undulating under the air currents as she went higher, higher so that she could no longer see the village. The space in which she existed seemed at once foreign and yet her own. This was her nightly journey, the one that might save her. For seven nights she existed in this liminal space, anchored to her bed, anchored to the idea that there was another Miriam who had overtaken her, one who existed in the bed of clouds that blindfolded the moon. It was on the eighth morning that she heard the airplane she knew to be in trouble. Roused from a morning nap, she was startled by the sound, despite living so close to Hackley Aerodrome and flying school. They become accustomed to the planes, but the sputtering was new, and it pulled her, still weak from the blood loss, from her bed. She grasped the heavy curtains that kept her room as night, and squinted at the intruding light. She opened the window, surprised at the soft, balmy air, and looked skyward for the airplane that now seemed elusive. There it was, a choking sound that told her it was still up there somewhere. 
She reached for a dress from the wardrobe and was soon clothed, the first time in over a week. She thought to take a cardigan, leave a note for Edmund, put an apple and two digestive biscuits in her bag. She barely knew where she was going as she stumbled down the stairs and outside to her bicycle. Her cardigan pulled on the metal sign on their gate, Hawthorne Cottage, as she passed through, and she reached back to release it. There had been much discussion in the naming of their house, how important it was to Edmund, what with her own hawthorn tree in the back garden, while she'd wondered if it were too showy. She was sore and stiff and in a weakened state, but the sun was out and this surprised her so much that it was enough to keep her moving, and soon she was out on the road, right on to Wickham Street, and then left on to Guildford Road that took her out of town in the direction of the airfield. Out in the open, she scoured the sky for any sight of the plane and spotted it ahead, teetering eastward. She pedaled toward it, trying to calculate where it might come down. She had gone nearly a mile when her heart, like a small animal yearning to break free, forced her to slow down. She had barely moved for seven days in a delirium brought on by grief, by the stillbirth that had left her catatonic, her days and nights blended. Edmund nursing her, her bewilderment, his own bewilderment, sadness set beside. Thanks for reading that section. I am especially happy to hear some of Miriam's fantasies of flying. You know, for me, uh, those sequences when you write about her sensations as she's learning how to fly, and later when she becomes a solo pilot were some of the most spectacular in the book for me, not only because they were so vivid and they were, and that was wonderful and, and poetic, but I was really intrigued with how her feminism and this idea, both the, the practice and the symbol of flying seemed to offer a parallel to some of the feminist protests uh, launched by uh, uh, the older uh, female character, Audrey. And I'm intrigued how you look at the feminisms of this era. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit from you about what was most difficult or most necessary in choosing to explore this often hidden history. And I'm also going to take the bold step of inviting Frances Riley onto the microphone as well, uh, in part because Frances and I were talking and uh, she was talking about how she was raised by the very feminists who uh, worked uh, in uh, World War II, uh, who were enrolled um, in uh, the Women's Auxiliary uh, Force and uh, worked with airplanes as well. So I'm going to invite Francis to come on. While we're waiting for that, Pamela, can you talk to us about what was most difficult or necessary about exploring a kind of hidden history of feminism? I came across the Air Transport Auxiliary probably about 10 years ago and was sort of fascinated by their, their bravery. I mean, that, that they were able to kind of go into learn how to fly, fly these planes without any kind of radar or modern day technical assistance. I hadn't really thought about the idea of feminism at the time in terms of the Air Transport Auxiliary in 2017, when I was thinking about writing the book, and I hadn't quite found the narrative, I took my daughter to go to the Women's March in Toronto. And it was there that we started to see all these signs about reproductive rights. And, you know, the fact that we were still fighting this fight of reproductive rights. And it was it was seeing this and I started to, to kind of ask myself the question, how long has this been going on? And so 
I came home and I started to, you know, do some research and I, I discovered that, you know, the 1930s was a really kind of era of women being very active in terms of reproductive rights. So I looked at what the, the fact that the reproductive rights was happening at the time was very active and the fact that these women were taking up flying, thinking about looking at that period through the, the eyes of feminism. Francis, are you there? Yes. Hello. Hello. So this is the voice of Frances Roberts Riley, who is our producer here on Watershed Writers. And I've invited her on to say a, a little bit about um, growing up in Britain, uh, raised by some of these uh, very feminist um, people that, uh, that Pamela has been talking about. Yes. So while in I'm reading the novel, I'm relating very clearly with uh, Miriam. Although there's a class distinction, I was working class, she's middle class, but she does address her privilege, I see. But what really came up to my mind was my mum, who was a rack in the RAF. The Spitfires used to be, they used to go out on their bombing raids, come back in, and uh, the women would sew the fuselage back, because you actually talk about that in the book, where they're covering the plane with fabric. But the men were the mechanics and the women got together and said, no, this isn't fair. We, we want to learn to be mechanics too. We have a contribution to make to the war effort. So they got together and finally, yes, they were able to have lessons and they became aircraft mechanics. So, um, so that, that was where I really connected with Miriam and her, just, just her passion for the flying and what, these, uh, what this effort could do for the war. Um, the other thing was, yeah, of course, the middle class ladies uh, were my teachers when I went to school and they were quite subversive because they had to go along with the idea of girls growing up to be mothers and, and wives. But like, the, like my mum and her, her sisters and that generation, they also tried to instill in us the independence that we needed as women as we grew up and that these women had found that independence by going through the war alone. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, women like Miriam, who would not have had an opportunity to learn to fly, I think the Air Transport Auxiliary, which was really a kind of support organization for the RAF was an interesting organization because it was sort of citizens who often were not able to be part of the RAF. There were women for one side, like women could not fly in battle and disabled men and or men who were too old. So it really kind of provided for women at that time an opportunity for freedom. You know, I think for people like Miriam, who had, you know, was living in a village, had a life, to be able to fly across the country and serve the war in a way that was less visible rather um you know it wasn't she wasn't in the RAF she wasn't in one of the kind of more more prominent organizations i you know i went to this really small museum in england for the air, air transport auxiliary you know their day was was kind of amazing they would go report to duty at an airfield and be told here's your kit which means that you need to take this spitfire from you know from north to brighton and uh, they had a flip book that they would put on their lap and that would be the instructions on how to fly that particular plane. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, it's kind of oh, wow. terrifying. It is kind of terrifying. So yes. And then I'd fly to say Brighton, and then they would go to to you know get another chit and say, now you're going to fly this gypsy moth to Birmingham, you know, and then they'd get this other flip book, and then they'd get the instructions for that particular plane. And they had no navigation equipment, no um, radio. They were they were you know kind of mapping it as a you know looking at at the landscape and then the direction. That that kind of bravery and that kind of you know sort of you know ability to have the kind of freedom to go across the country you know it's like francis was saying is there there are a lot of examples of feminism that we don't think about in those terms but to look at them on an individual le- level it really does kind of speak to a, a kind of feminism that we have to recognize i think i particularly think of that sequence um it's early on in her um in her flying training when she realizes that she's been living i don't know 100 miles from the ocean and she's never seen it and I think, oh, of course, this is this is a lower middle class a, a women's semi-rural lives in uh, in England in the 30s. Why would she have seen the ocean, right? The idea of you know going to the sea for a holiday is very bourgeois, and it's not for working people, not really, not at that time in history, right? That was just a huge moment for me. So she has to become a cartographer as well. Right. And she's making these maps as she's flying, which is another mm-hmm. thing that I, I, I thought was astounding, right? That she has to not only navigate, not only operate the controls, but also, you know, she's writing down where things are as it's happening, right? And so it's just, it's like an astonishing undertaking for sure. What else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I want to know a little bit about the men as well and how you uh sort of take apart the the easy idea of comrades in arms between the the two men so the um the young man who's already a flyer a training flyer and and frank who is one of our protagonists and is uh as you mentioned before he's disabled he has a club foot and can't serve in in uh, regular service but he's ambivalent in some ways about this air transport service because it's not what the rest of the guys are doing because the air transport auxiliary did take men who were either too old to fly in the RAF or disabled, I thought it would. I wanted to kind of explore what that looked like, and and to again to be part of the war, but not really in the war. You know, they're sort of like supporting the war. What does that look like for men? What does that look like for someone like Frank, who is who is an outsider because? of his disability and he's an outsider to his family because of his sexuality and yet he's also an accomplished flyer you know he he actually probably could be perfectly fine (laughs) flying in the RAF and he's you know mechanically inclined he's able to kind of fix his plane so I wanted to have him be not all of one thing or the other you know he has this sort of what you might think of as sort of masculine traits of having mechanical expertise and so I think having that kind of complexity, the, the, the ambivalence is there. You know, he's he's serving the war. He's he's flying. He's doing what he loves. But yet he is not doing what other men might be doing. I don't think that he necessarily wants to be out fighting the, 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 the fight. But, you know, there is a, a status to those roles. And there's an expectation. You know, we, we expect men to go bravely on to war. And he's not able to do this. While Peter is is he is living a more sort of traditional role, and despite his you know kind of repressed sexuality, he's kind of putting on a front that is 
to a certain extent works for him. So playing with those two, how how each of them are going out in the in the world in this masculine you know, with with the kind of idea of what masculinity looks like, um, and trying to kind of bring it down to you know kind of a more complex figures. Indeed. Uh, can I ask you to read another section? Yes, I will read a section about Audrey. And Audrey, as you say, is is the she's a woman in her fifties, and she's a reproductive rights activist. She goes around the country lecturing on reproductive rights, and she lives in a caravan, and she loves to swim in a river. So I'm going to read a small section here where she's actually in the river. She brushed up against a tree branch that had fallen into the river and pushed herself away, turning over and again in order to swim the last bit back to the caravan. Her mind like the willow tree, calm, lifting to the breezy thoughts that called her attention. She was reaching, it seemed, in all directions, her arms and legs taut, a mild ache from the strain. She would relish her nap in the caravan later. Her caravan, her refuge. How many years has it been? Six now. That day she'd been out driving with Frank to a family luncheon and seen the caravan abandoned in the field, heard it call to her. She was not looking to shock when she told them she wanted to live in it, though her family would differ on this. She was always trying to shock, they'd say. Those days in the war, what was she doing driving an ambulance? They prattled on at each dinner she attended, each wedding, funeral, Christmas, as if talking about it would undo the past. There was no way to tell them about the men, so badly burned, especially the pilot, she learned, removed goggles and gloves in flight so they could see peripherally so they could feel the machine gun button. This is what one had told her, a whispered voice that would be his last. Her motorcycle, that too, in a front. How she missed those days, roaming the countryside, getting cups of tea from outside workmen when she was on this, the brink of freezing to death. Such a fine machine, a James. And that suit, a plug-in motorcycle suit that kept her warm. The war was over, so what else was she to do? That day she showed up to her brother at university. He was mortified, though he was always mortified by her actions. These days she only left her caravan to campaign. How did that spirit that allowed her to ride a motorcycle come to an end? How did she become the person she was now? A recluse, as her brother liked to call her. But he was only interested in the life of financiers and bankers. He struggled to label her. An activist? A woman who liked to think to read, to be alone, to have a glass of sherry in the afternoon and an occasional whiskey in the evening, who swam on the river and wrote letters to members of Parliament. She kicked hard for a few strokes to prove to herself that she did have strength, that this was not beyond her, none of it, not the river, not the living alone in the caravan, nor the campaign that was losing ground as the threat of war increased. Thanks so much. I, You know, I think that the complexity of Audrey as being uh, the oldest of the characters that that you write into into this book, and the problem of what to do after one has proved oneself to be extraordinarily brave, and then the war comes to an end, and she is supposed to, in some ways, go back to being conventional, and she can't. No, she cannot. What she has discovered about herself as an ambulance driver is beyond what people expect of her socially and culturally. So she's a recluse, right? Yeah, yeah. And she's not married. And, you know, that she's not living that kind of traditional life. And and so, yeah, I think it makes sense for a woman like um, Audrey to 
take on a cause, you know, and I was interested mm-hmm. when I, in my research to learn that this was something that women did. There, you know, there was a kind of whole network of women who would go around the country and give lectures on topics, not just reproductive rights, but other co- topics. And, and so when I was researching the reproductive rights history at the time, I came across the biography of Stella Brown, just a amazing woman who she was Canadian, as a matter of fact, she was born in Halifax, lived here till she was 12, and moved to England and became a, a great leader in the, in the kind of activism, especially abortion rights. She did what kind of what Audrey did, just going around the country, lecturing on, on reproductive rights, and, and in fact, was kind of quite effective in terms of lobbying for laws that to, to take place. The, the Abortion Law Reform Act was established in, I think, 1936, and it was largely due to her efforts. You know, it's one of these things, too, that, you know, I think it's always a, a kind of tenet of uh, historical fiction that the more historical it is, the more pertinent it is in a, in contemporary times, right? That 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 is something that um, historical novelists do is want to point out that there have been been these kinds of questions and these kinds of debates that are decades and sometimes centuries old that we're still trying to figure out, right? And with the repeal of uh, Roe versus Wade, I think we're we're back in 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 this discussion of of reproductive rights again. Yeah, I mean, that's when I started doing the research. I was really kind of astounded at how progressive and how much, you know, activism was going on in reproductive rights at the time, you know, and and then the same thing was, you know, there was class divide. There were women in the 30s who, you know, if you were from a certain class, you could probably get an abortion. You could probably get, you know, birth control fairly easily. There was a lot of um, secrecy around it, but uh, you could probably get it. And of course, people, you know, working class or, or poor, you know, living in poverty had no access, had no access to knowledge. That was such a, that was one of the things that was really quite surprising in reading some of the sort of firsthand accounts of, of women, you know, women who would get, had several, several children. They had, some of them had really didn't know how they'd gotten pregnant. Some of them, they would not even know how they would the baby would be born. Like they had just had very, very limited knowledge, which was really sad. And and you're thinking the idea of access to knowledge is such a simple thing, but you know, it was something that was that that was a kind of power that they just did not have. And of course, they were blamed for the marriage. You know, like a lot of women would be frightened that their husband would beat them because they were pregnant again. You know, so they had no power and they were blamed. Yeah. So those are some of those issues that are still relevant today. Here at Watershed Writers, we want to send a shout out to Volcamus Writers Community in Guelph. They are hosting their Book Bash at the Guelph Farmers Market on Sunday, November 6th in the afternoon from 2 to 5 o'clock. Plenty of local writers and publishers will be converging on that space, and it'll be a great place to get some book deals and share in the local and the literary. So don't miss out. I uh, really love the title of this book, As Little As Nothing, and I was delighted to see that it comes from a poem by the great Polish poet and winner of the uh, Nobel Prize, Wisława Szymborska, clearly as someone that you've been reading since you lived in Poland in the 90s, and everyone should read her because she's awesome. And I'm always interested in uh, writers' reasons for choosing a particular title because sometimes it's really hard. 
hard to find a title for this thing that you've been working on for a long time. Why did this phrase, as little as nothing, appeal to you? She's such a great poet, um, and I think I was I was really struggling to find a title for the for the book. I didn't want something that was sort of too on the nose, you know, like <laughs> just and it's you know because it's it's about women who are flying because it's reproductive rights. There was a few things happening, and I was looking through some of her poetry, and I came across this poem, "The End and the Beginning." It really is written about the aftermath of war and and cleaning up after the war, and and really the idea is how how little people know about what that what war was going into it, and how they're forced to go to pick up the pieces afterwards. But that idea that how much they knew was as little as nothing. And I think that for me, that kind of felt like what was happening in in that time period that I was writing about. So the whole year when they were talking about the war, the pending war, whether it was coming, what would it look like? And in fact, erasing that historical knowledge that we have, that we know what it looked like. We've seen the films. You put yourself in that period and think how much they knew, and they knew as little as nothing. And that reminds me a little bit of your previous novel, The Deserters, that takes a close look at post-service PTSD experienced by a military veteran, a veteran of the Iraq War, I believe, right? Hmm, I wanted to know whether you come from a military family or whether you have another kind of experience that led you to write two novels about the personal complications of international conflict. Well, the short answer is no. (laughs) I don't know why I was drawn to write about war in both of these books, but I was. And I just, I think I don't understand war. And maybe it's, it's my way. I mean, as I don't mean to oversimplify it, because I know that, you know, war is complicated. But I think that there are, are there are things that we don't know about going into war, and war is you know if we take war as an entity, it, it is a big dramatic thing. It, it it is is such a big thing that it's hard to even think about it in terms of you know writing about within it. You know, so so what I've been doing is writing around the edges. What is the kind of mental state? What is the kind of capacity we have as individuals to imagine? what war might be going into it and what happens on the other side when we come out of it and think how damaged are we even if we are if it's not visible and if we're not even that close to the battlefield how damaged are we as as a people so so i'm i'm just kind of interested in i guess in that way i mean I have a huge sprawling family. I've got aunts and cousins on it, but I do have one cousin who was in the military. Actually, when I was writing, he still lives in the in the U.S. And when I was writing the book, I hadn't seen him for about twenty five years, and we happened to have Christmas in New Brunswick together. And he was talking a little bit about being in war. So, and I was writing the book, and he was going, "Why are you so interested in this?" <laughs> you know, and I and I kind of took a few. Uh, details as he was talking about his experience, and I dropped those in the bo- in, in the book. But, but no, we, for the most part, we are a non-military family, and I have had no ex- uh, firsthand experience. Well, I want to talk then a, a little bit about your upcoming project, and I know you have a nonfiction project, a nonfiction manuscript that you're working on, and parts of it has have been published. I've read uh, your essay in the Literary Review of Canada, the essay titled That World Elsewhere, in which you discuss train travel's effect on the imagination. 
So looking at an annual trip that you make um, to the East Coast with your daughter and how it, how it makes you think and imagine the world differently. You also include this, I have to say, a, a hilarious and sad historical note, and I'm going to quote from the essay, we were not agitated by the speed of the train as we might have been at the dawn of the railways when there was a fear that women's constitutions were too weak and that the acceleration might cause their uteruses to fly from their bodies, unquote. So yes, yeah. I have definitely heard that about the early days of, of rail travel. I'm wondering if, <laughs> if it was even possible for women to travel on the train and always a good reminder that our privileges have been tested by generations before us, including women who had to say to people, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> right. That was an amazing quote when I found that. It just, I could have said so much. So for you, what's the pivot point between fiction and nonfiction? Uh, what was the impetus for writing a nonfiction book at this time? The pivot point is a tricky one. You know, I have been really kind of interested in trains for a long time. I've taken the train for over 10 years now, 27 hours from Kitchener to Moncton with my daughter. It's been a great annual trip and, and I travel by train when I can. So I've been thinking about writing about train travel for a long time. When the pandemic came, you know, I thought, well, what better time to write about travel when you can't travel? So I, I, I kind of just sat in, in this room and, and wrote about various train trips that I'd taken and looked at the history, the social history of train, and also a kind of uh, just, just sort of a, it became a kind of meditation on travel generally. So I guess the question about the pivot point is that I think that, you know, with, with fiction, I am able to roam a little bit farther with in terms of bringing in characters, bringing in, you know, situations and things that I think that, you know, contribute to the story, whereas the spine of a, a nonfiction or the, you know, the kind of framework is, is, is a bit more sort of laid out. But nonfiction is a kind of fiction too. You know, I'm writing about trips that I took 20, 30, 40 years ago. Like, is that fiction? That, is that is that nonfiction that I'm writing? Or is it a kind of fictionalized account? It's my memory. I'm piecing it together with some research of what, you know, train travel, some aspect of train travel. So I think that's what's really interesting now with kind of creative nonfiction is that it becomes such a, is the blur between that and 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 fiction. Both are moving within in the other's territory because, of course, you have fiction, you have autofiction. They're just both sort of tramping on each other's territory, so to speak. So, but I think it's all yeah. for the good. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Do you have a title for the new collection? I do. It's called Off the Track, A Meditation on Train Journeys in the Year of No Travel. Ah, awesome. And will you read us a, a, a chunk of that? I can certainly do that. It's going to be published next year and I, we're still working on it, but I think this will be the, the opening sections. From my window, I see an angel in the garden of my neighbor, but one. This angel is about the size of an eight-year-old child and is alabaster white. From the back, for it is turned away from me, I see a gentle wave of hair that falls to the shoulders, a set of wings that shroud the body, like those hunched ones of an eagle, the feathers sculpted on the wings like tufted meringue. It is turned away from me now, but when it first appeared, I'm sure it was facing me. I try not to read anything into this. 
I can't remember if the angel appeared before or after the pandemic started, and again, I try not to read anything into its sudden appearance. I first saw it across the street when another neighbor was walking it out to the edge of the road with a sign that said, Free, hanging around its neck. The neighbors who claimed it are not religious people, as far as I know, more likely to pray to the goddess of 70s rock music as they play in a band, evidenced by the steady drumbeat on Thursday nights coming from their basement. They are pleased with the legalization of pot. This view of the angel has been a constant in recent weeks, a welcome focus when I swivel my chair to look out the window, where before I saw only the brick house, the back deck, occasionally peopled with my next-door neighbors and their friends. Time slows, spring bursts forth, then retreats, the angel momentarily lost in a flurry of snow, and people talk of calm, a peacefulness that has descended like that persistent snow. Some talk of boredom, but we have not yet been stricken. The stillness constant, our house a ship becalmed. For the past ten years, on a day late in June, I have boarded a train in Kitchener with my daughter. Then, two trains and twenty-seven hours later, disembarked in Moncton. In those first moments as we roll out of town, we point out rat boxes behind the bread factory, fishermen on the shores of the Grand River, and, gaining speed, we poise ourselves at the window to catch a glimpse of what we've dubbed the Castle House, a garish paradox amidst this pastoral farmland, with its battlement roofs and gated boundary. Who are they trying to keep out, I wonder? Because from our window, we have the perfect view of the Castle House, albeit fleeting. It feels like our secret discovery and an intrusion on those owners who want to be seen and not seen. The seeing and not seeing is what we do during this entire journey. Our eyes drift to the outer landscape, to the panoramic view, then flicker back to that which is immediately before us, rushing by. This back and forth, this shifting perspective, is something we take for granted. So accustomed we are to this mode of travel, we would consider slow. Oh, I love that ending. <laughs> right? The year of no travel and, and, yeah. and you know, considering train travel slow. Yeah, that's oh, great. Thank yeah. you. I, I look forward to it. Um, now, I note that we've made it through the whole interview without really discussing your day job, though you referred to it a little bit at the top of the hour. Uh, you edit the New Quarterly and you're the director of the Wild Riders Literary Festival here in Waterloo. Mm -hmm. So that means you do plenty of work in the literary community, both uh, very local and uh, national. Mm -hmm. I am interested in what your biggest surprises you encountered in, in these positions. My work is always kind of a work of discovery. We're just discovering new writers all the time. I think I often working alone in this room or at the office at St. Jerome's and in my with the other my colleagues. But what was always a nice surprise is when I can stick my head above the parapet and sort of see progress of some of the authors that I've worked with. Last week, I received a note from somebody who we had published a few years ago. It was her first short story that she published was with us and so she wrote to tell me that she had just signed a, a book deal yes so it surprises really sometimes you sort of come up and say oh yes we're doing some interesting things here you know and and somebody's getting a book deal as having started with the, having their work published with us so those are the sort of nice surprises in the work that I do well, I wish you much luck with as little as nothing, and uh, I loved it, and I think everyone else will as well, and uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. 
thank you so much, Tannis. And thank you for the very interesting and thought-provoking questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, thank you. So As Little As Nothing is published by the good people at ECW Press and available now at Wordsworth Books or wherever fine books are sold. Please remember to support your local independent bookseller. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Watershed Writers, the first of season three. Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. We are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is our fearless leader. John Roscoe is our technical producer, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to read local and think global.